Good morning and welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Deniger. Over the past couple of months during this new normal, that is the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, we have seen a lot of unique situations crop up and we've had to make a large number of adjustments to our practices and our procedures within our pharmacies. One of the things that cropped up as part of the national provider response to this pandemic has been an increased need for certain medications, among them opioids. Our pharmacy works very closely with a local hospice provider, uh, and one of their concerns, as this all started to play out, was the increased need for morphine for their patients and others, uh, along with the potential for shortages uh, around the country, both of which have actually come to fruition to some degree or another since this all started. The hospice asked us at that point to increase our stock of morphine dosage forms in anticipation of their increased need uh, and the potential for shortages. The DEA, I should point out, had already made some uh, made a point to loosen some of the restrictions and red tape involved with opioids uh, during the pandemic. The issue for us, however, as a pharmacy, is that like every other pharmacy that orders controlled substances, we are subject to an allocation limit, which effectively prevents us from ordering unlimited controlled substances. Over the years, we rarely bumped into this threshold or allocation limit. Most commonly, uh, ordering large bottles of lorazepam, for example, to fill a robot. Uh, near the end of the month, we'd trip over that limit, and we don't know exactly where it was at, but a bottle of 1,000 put us over somehow. Uh, usually, we can get by because, you know, for ordering, you know, one or two bottles of 1,000 during the month, we may not use them all, uh, but we're always going to order one when we run out of a, or empty a bottle. Uh, but in this particular case, because we don't know these thresholds, uh, this increase in uh, need for the hospice was potentially going to catch up with us. Um, Another thing I should point out about these general limits is that they are actually aggregated. So uh, it's not per individual drug like morphine 15 milligrams. It's all morphine as an aggregate is thrown into that threshold. And liquids are calculated uh, in some way to include their dosage form as well. During March of this year, we actually hit our morphine limit, and it was 10 days before the end of the month. Now, we were able to limp through with our stock and get through the month and reorder again in April, but we were already behind. And during April, we actually hit our limit another five or six days before that, so about halfway through the month. At that point, we needed to do something. So we had to request from our wholesaler an increase in our allocation limit. This is not a trivial request. It involves, for us, it involved multiple calls, answering uh, several detailed questions, and ultimately it took the rest of the month to get an allocation increase uh, complete. Uh, A lot of red tape that we had to go through to get there. In other words, uh, while our threshold was ultimately temporarily increased, we started into May before we were able to order any extra. Now, Patient care actually became an issue during this two-week period as we tried to accomplish this. We actually ran out of several strengths of morphine tablets during that period and were having to fill prescriptions written for 60-milligram tablets with 15-milligram tablets. Do the math, that takes four times as many tablets. We were very rapidly running out of that strength as well. Now, the rules are in place because of an increased scrutiny that has been afforded to narcotics and opioids, uh, the opioid epidemic 
as it were, just happens to be coexisting during now a pandemic of an infectious disease in this country. Today, we're going to discuss with some of the legal ramifications uh, that pharmacists and pharmacies should share as they consider dispensing opioids in this new era. So let's listen in as Randy talks with a good friend of ours, uh, Joe Moose, and uh, Sean Parker, who is the chief counsel for CPESN USA. Welcome to Thrive Subscribe podcast, and today we have two special guests. Uh, we got Sean Parker, who's general counsel for CPSN USA, and we also have Joe Moose, who's co-owner of Moose Pharmacy and also director of strategy and luminary development for CPSN USA. Um, our focus today on this podcast is really talking about opioid stewardship and really what are the responsibilities of community pharmacists to provide Opioid, steward, opioid stewardship to their patients. And I want to start, um, Sean, by asking you a question. First of all, welcome, Sean and Joe. Thanks for coming today. Glad to be here. Thank you. And Sean, so the first question I have for you being um, a general counsel for CPS in USA is, what are the legal risks that pharmacists need to be aware of and when they're filling prescriptions for patients who are taking opioids? Yes, thank you. So, so there's really three areas that we're looking at where you might have a adverse action taken on on your pharmacy or you as a pharmacist. And you know, the highest level is uh, there's potential that you could be criminally charged uh, based on the results of uh, what happens with, with the drugs that you've dispensed. Uh, there is potential for civil liability in case someone is harmed. Um, or there's a civil reason that you would be sued along with the prescriber or else when there's often a wrongful death that's been uh, not too uncommon. And then and clearly uh, you could uh, run afoul of your regulatory board um, by, you know, acting outside your pharmacovigilance or, or again, this uh, opioid uh, dispensing best practice that we're trying to uh, help uh, assist with. So those are the three major areas where you could find some uh, issues or the risk. Now, the criminal is pretty high because uh, it, it, it requires you to have kind of a mens rea, an intent to commit a wrongdoing. Uh, but we have seen pharmacists have been charged criminally when they're part of a criminal enterprise to dispense. Uh, the civil one, uh, you may even have insurance that will help with this. It's not as common, um, but certainly uh, there's circumstances where a pharmacy, an independent pharmacy, was recently sued for a wrongful death um, because they uh, dispensed to someone who then shared that drug with someone who died in that family, uh, sued the pharmacy as well as the prescriber, uh, even though the, the pharmacy uh, uh, you know, dispensed to, to the appropriate person. Um, but mostly where we're seeing issues are, um, which could result in a adverse action to your livelihood is with your regulatory board where they're really stepping up signs to see that you're following and are aware of red flags uh, with dispensing and you're taking appropriate action and documenting it. So I, I think those are the three areas. And as we discuss, I'll go a little more detail with each or some examples if that would be helpful. Sean, I appreciate that. I, I do have one follow-up question for you. And, and maybe it's in the, bu the, the second bucket when it's um, the civil liability and you talked about, you know, that that case where the family sued not only the prescriber, but also the pharmacy and the pharmacist. And so it used to be, you know, that the pharmacist were not included in those kind of lawsuits. So it's usually going after the prescriber. And I used to always say that if we want to get paid, 
to provide services, well, we have to accept the liability and responsibility for those services as well, too. So do you see that being more commonplace where pharmacists are included in these lawsuits? I, I do, and, and part of it is probably a new emphasis on, on the doctrine of corresponding responsibility, since there, there is in federal statute a, a law that uh, puts the uh, uh, onus not only on the prescriber, but the dispenser to make sure it's a, a lawful uh, use, and, and they, they count on you to use your professional medical judgment or your professional judgment um, in regards to whether it's an appropriate prescription or not, that is part of your responsibility. So I do see um, uh, pharmacies being brought into these type of lawsuits. Thank you for that answer. And so, Joe, that leads to my question for you then. What kind of practice strategies can pharmacists implement within their practice to improve opioid stewardship? Yeah, Randy, I, I think first we've got to recognize, hey, we've got to do something differently. That This notion, I think Sean just laid it out perfect for us, this notion that because it's a legitimate doctor with a legitimate license and this is a, a real patient, even if the patient has real medical need, that we just fill the prescription because it, it's a legitimate prescription. Um you know, and that's that's our culpability in the in the whole process. I think we've got to got to throw that out the window. Um, I, I know in our pharmacies a, a number of years ago, we took the stance that, hey, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, standing up in front of a judge or a court or a jury saying, well, hey, it was a legitimate prescription. I want to make sure that we've got we've got a good justification for filling in and we've done due diligence on on our side at the pharmacy to, to make sure that the, the medication was was one appropriate and two that that it was used right and the patient had the, the education and the tools to know how to use it right so uh, we have a, we've we've got a, a, a process that every patient on every opioid um, goes through this process and, and it, it's kind of a a three-tiered process with tier number one being screening. Um, is it appropriate? Tier number two is is education, letting the, the patient know uh, not only how to take the drug correctly, but what are your policies around the drug and what are your policies around refilling and what are your policies around communicating with the physician or other physicians they may see. And then, then the third uh, piece of that is is the intervention piece. You know, when do you when do you intervene? When do you to uh, when do you recommend alternate therapies? When do you intervene in terms of recommending them for some type of uh, medication assisted treatment plan or or rehab or or any of those type things? So we implement those that sort of three process. Um, strategy with every prescription we fill. And I hear a lot of pharmacists ask me, well, hey, we do a lot of opioids. There's no way we have time for that. And I'm like, you know, we felt the same way. And it's, you know, when you get a process in place, I won't lie to you and say it doesn't take any extra time because it does. Um, but we also feel a lot better if we ever get audited or inspected that that we've done due diligence and and we think that that we've got a we've got a very good defense um, as well as we feel like the patients are getting 
better treatment, better coordination of care, and are at much less risk when, they, when they're coming to our pharmacy. I like those three tiers that you talked about, Joe. And, 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 and Joe, I like... Go ahead. No, no, uh, the, I, I would say the, the, the concept of standing in front of a judge or jury is, is one of the reasons for being named in more of these lawsuits. It's a very sympathetic case when you have young children dying from this uh, opioid crisis, and, and it's well known, and actually most everyone knows someone who's had this uh, problem, so um, it, it, it's not you don't want to be in that circumstance where you've been named and you're just limited to, well, it was a legitimate prescription because the doctor wrote it. Um, the second post in uh, potential criminal liability is these uh, attorney generals are uh, can be a little bit more opportunistic. So they look to see when uh, doctors have been charged by their medical boards and actions, and they can follow through and see if uh, the pharmacy could have any culpability based on uh, the action of the prescriber. So one of the questions I have following up with those comments is, Joe, I, I see those three tiers and I see the screening being both a defensive move in the sense that you're documenting what this is being used for as, as part of the screening process and probably checking the dosing of it, et cetera. Whereas the education intervention or more of your strategies to, to care for the patient, so more of an offensive uh, strategy to make sure the patient is achieving a therapeutic, uh, an optimal outcome. So do you see the screening part of it being something that you say all pharmacists should just be doing this right now, just so they have that information within their system? Yes, I, absolutely. I think, you know, we've got the tools, I think, in in every state to look in the, the, the registry and see what they're doing. So, you know, we, we, look at the prescription to verify that it's legitimate. Um, I think up until this point, all the screening you do is around uh, a payment. You know, is the right day supply on there? Is Did we exceed the number of pills for that day supply where if we got all of it today would recoup payment? Well, I think, you know, we need to take that screening a step further than that and look at the the registry and say, okay, are they going to multiple um, pharmacies? Are they going to multiple doctors? You know, how long has it been? They got a 30-day supply. Has it been 30 days since they got it? You know, are they getting it two days early if, if that was somebody's policy? Are they getting it two days early every month? All of that you can see from the controlled substance registry, you know, as well as screening of, of your database and, and are they on drugs that, that may uh, you know, enhance the effects or, or uh, make them a greater risk of, of, uh, of overdose, you know, that, that, that's going on there from the screening side of it. So I think it gives you a lot of good tools in the, in the very first step. Do you have a diagnosis? Do we know, you know, exactly what they're using it for? Is it pain? Okay. Where is the pain? How do you have a conversation with that patient about, is your back pain any better or, or are you able to walk any further if you don't, if all you know is they've got generalized pain or chronic persistent pain? I'm assuming as you talk about those three tiers that they not necessarily all happen all at the same time. And yeah, I mean, is that right? yeah, exactly. And we didn't phase it in all at the same time. I, I won't tell you what we're doing today is what we started, you know, a year ago doing it, it. It's we phased in like, hey, every script, let's start looking at the registry. Okay. 
now let's start showing them we, we have higher policy, our controlled substance, Moose Pharmacy controlled substance policy it is written out. And we give patients a copy of this policy. And the policy says, you know, we don't refill it early. We don't care if you're dog-gated. Um, we are going to communicate with your physician. And if another physician writes something, we're going to communicate that with your primary care physician. And, and we let them know and we give them expectations. So when they come in asking for it early, we can say, well, remember, we showed you that. We, we, we don't do that. Um, and, and quite frankly, it cuts down, uh, I think, tremendously the amount of time you spend with some of these patients that have, uh, that have high anxiety about getting it filled and that type of thing and are calling you, you know, two weeks early. Hey, can I fill it today? No, you've got to wait two weeks. And then they're calling you. No, you still got to wait a week. You know, on that is, you know, it's pretty black and white on on how how this is handled. And we we all, uh, you, you know, everybody is on page on that. We, you know, we talk to them about how to store the medication um, to make sure that it is safe, that, that somebody doesn't get it and that they're responsible for safeguarding that medication. Just because you've got a police report doesn't mean we're going to fill it early. Um, you know, you're responsible for, for keeping that, that medication safe. So uh, kind of outlining all that stuff up front, um, you know, some, some of it happens every encounter. Some of it, you know, after they've been given our policy, they don't get it every, every refill. So you don't go through all three steps every time you're filling one. So as I listen to this then, Joe, I, I see that this really, you're putting more effort maybe up front, up front with a patient who's coming in with an opioid prescription, but it's saving you a lot on the back end because now you've got this in place. So it's easier for you to follow up with that patient and then make any intervention that you need to. How does, an, uh, how does a care plan fit into this? Yeah, so the, you know, the care plan is... It's the way we document everything we've done. And we did. We had our wholesalers send their compliance team in. And, and it was very easy. They had a list of, of drugs that we were buying from our wholesaler. They had a list of patients. And they, you know, we, we could pull the patient up. We could tell them their diagnosis. We could tell them the conversation we had yesterday with them, the conversation we had three weeks ago with them. We could tell them, hey, they've requested this drug be refilled three times, and we have denied it. You know, so every time somebody comes up, calls in for a refill, you know, we document that whether we get whether we fill it or not, we, we document that they you know are trying to get it early. So it, it made that process super, uh, super easy because we had that care plan. But it also it it helps you. In, and I'll tell you, I was practicing the other day and I had a had a young female who wanted uh, her medication early and it was two days early but she had gotten it two days early the month before and our pharmacist kelsey had talked to her and documented and said no you're going to have to actually you know wait till this date to do it and she was telling me that they were going out of town and that they were going on vacation that her whole family was in the car ready and that kelsey had told her that that she could get it this day and i'm like well i'm reading the notes from it where that's not what kelsey um, documented, she said. So it gave me a, a really concrete defense, and and I said, no, it's it, you know it's documented right here on the day that you can get it, um, and, and that's not today. And if if you're out of it, 
you know, then then let's have another conversation about why you're out of it. So I, I think it really, you know, it, it shortened that back and forth. He said, she said, and it made me so much more efficient um, that it was worth the time it took for Kelsey to document it in efficiency that came in on the back end of it. And I probably never would have thought that because every time you feel like, okay, I got to I got to go in and log this extra piece of information in on this type of prescription. You feel like it's slowing you down, but if you if you look at all the convenience of having that at your fingertips on the back end, the efficiencies that it gives you, I think it makes good good business sense just from a from an efficiency standpoint. Not to mention the the I think the like I say the better the better care that you're going to give the patient and the protection that I hope that that would give you you know if there ever was the, the case where you ended up in court or something like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, Joe, I think with the care plan, the documentation that you talk about, it not only benefits the patient care, but also benefits the practice because people can see what they did and what was the discussion with the patient. But Sean, back to you, I would assume that kind of documentation will help protect you in those three buckets of risk that you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, when, when you establish kind of a protocol and everyone within your pharmacy understands how how you function, as Joe mentioned, where you know it's kind of out there, uh, the, the patients also understand this process and understand it so you, you don't have that back and forth. But most importantly, you know, by, by putting it into your protocol and documenting it, uh, you, you're demonstrating that you're aware of this, that this is why you're doing it, and uh, it, it helps justify your professional judgment. So you can have a protocol and deviate from it, but if you're documenting, you can explain why very quickly. And so I think that's very helpful um, to, to show how you're responding. You know, Randy, this this documentation, the, the piece I like about it is, is, you know, we've got a template in there um, specifically for patients on opioids, and it helps you remember to, to, to check all these different points so, you know, it, it's sort of walking you through that and it helps you know, hey, did I discuss this with them in the past? So maybe I don't have to go through that again this time when you're when you're refilling it the next time, because um, you're seeing, you know, what what was documented from the previous times. And like you say, you don't you know, you don't go through the full blown everything every time. I really, you know, a lot of this stuff around the opioid epidemic that wholesalers are doing with with allocations and that, you know, people are doing a lot of that just gets at, at cutting the amount of, of opioids that, that you particularly have and just sends them somewhere else. And I don't really think that gets at fixing the epidemic. I think the epi epidemic part is fixed in, in, uh, it's fixed in that second phase, the education phase. It's sitting and telling them right up front when they're getting that first, you know, they, they hurt their shoulder or got a shoulder replacement. They're getting that first hydrocodone prescription for, you know, 30 tablets or 15 tablets or whatever. And you tell them, hey, you know, don't look for this to be long term. You know, if, if we're going into a second and third refill of this, you know, you need to be talking to your doctor about other strategies that you can do and, and you start them out on the right track you don't we've all seen those patients who who had a, a toothache and got 15 hydrocodone and eight months from now they're going to five different doctors in the ed and they're getting it for all different types of reasons and they're you know that, that 
it just escalated once they got started on it. You know, you want to help educate them and, and prevent that from the beginning. That's how we, that's how we really, at least in my opinion, how we work on controlling the future of this epidemic. No, I agree, Joe. And, and that kind of leads me to my last question for both of you. And that is, you know, do you have some examples of practices of where they didn't have an opioid stewardship program in place and didn't do these things with the screening, the education intervention, um, where their license or their practice became at risk? And I don't know if you want to start, Joe or Sean, you can start. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there's there's dozens of anecdotal uh, stories out there. I think some that are hitting home because it, it really speaks to what Joe spoke to uh, earlier um, was, you know, here in North Carolina and last February, uh, we had a, a, a pharmacy, an independent pharmacy uh, that was, uh, uh, I guess the DEA said that he repeatedly filled opioid prescriptions and ignored well-known red flags. So it's those red flags that we keep speaking to because you, you know your patients and now you're paying attention. And uh, I think what capped it was his his opinion that uh, it, they had a uh, they had a prescription and a doctor wrote it, so he's going to fill it, and that just what wasn't going to fly anymore with the DEA. And so they did charge him, and as part of the consent order, uh, the the pharmacist decided not to seek renewal of their DEA registration or their pharmacy license. So they allowed their pharmacy license to expire and they did not uh, renew the registration and effectively went out of business. Now in this case, you know, they're probably close to retirement and felt it was worth uh, the, the uh, effort just to go out and to, to fight it. But you can definitely see where that is how the DEA and, and regulators are looking at this. Are, are you, you have a responsibility uh, to be sure that it's an appropriate dispensing. And if it's, you know, doubtful, questionable, or suspicious, you, the law says you don't have to dispense it. So if you willfully, deliberately ignore uh, what what you should be looking for in, in your dispensing, then you could be culpable. I, yeah, John, I appreciate that because really what you're talking about is, you know, that's a passive filling of prescriptions where you're just not even thinking about the process and these red flags that you talk about are popping up. So you're not really paying attention to those. You're just filling it because, A, I've got a prescription from the physician, yet the DEA and others are coming in saying, no, no, you have a responsibility to your patient. And so that I think that is very clear that we need to be doing this um, on everybody. Joe, do you have any examples? Yeah, well, I'll just, I think I'll, I'll leave you with these examples because as I've traveled across the country and gone to different meetings and, and talked to people about this, this comes up in the, in the meeting. That there's always a pharmacy owner that pulls me aside and says, "Hey, you know, I, I just got my pharmacy. You know, we just got named in a lawsuit, and and, and uh, you know, I've heard it from from independent guys. I've heard it from from small regional chains. A, a number of folks out there, and they're asking, you know, what can we do, or or what steps and well I'm not an attorney so I don't I don't know I I talked to Sean about this and I talked to other folks about this and I try to gather the best practices of what what pharmacies are doing all over the country and and implement that to to do the best for the patients that we can and and so uh, I don't think you know I, I think that your head's in the sand if you don't think you are uh, that that you're 
in, in line for some somebody to to try to make a buck off of you, um, whether it's it's because of something you've done wrong or or not. Uh, I think you're on the chopping block in, in this litigious society that mm-hmm. we're in. So uh, I'm hearing it out there. It's happening. Pharmacies are, are, are getting named in these suits. And, and I think if uh, it's just a matter of time and, and until one of them does. And, and the more documentation and the more process you have in place that you can show uh, that you are, are doing uh, what would be considered above the medical standard, I think, um, is what you always want to go for. I think the more mm-hmm. protection you have. Well, I appreciate the information. You both uh, that saying the, the best defense is a good offense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so thank you both, uh, Sean and Joe, for your, your knowledge and experience of working uh, with patients with opioids and the good strategies for pharmacists to follow to make sure they got the appropriate documentation in place to not only protect their practice, but also provide optimal care to their patients. Um, so we appreciate your time today and, and thank you very much. Thank you. The Thrive Subscribe podcast is brought to you by Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.